Today on AM to DM, we're talking about Bloomberg and Stop and Frisk, and then Zach is sitting down with actor Gloria Rubin. We'll see you on the timeline. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Stafford, she's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to DM. Welcome to Monday. We're back. We've been here before. <laughs> we have. How was your weekend? It was good. It was so good. I got to see some family. I had brunch with my gay uncles, my uncles, uh, Adam and Sean, and that was lovely. They live in North Carolina. So they're up here in town for this weekend, so we got to have a gay old time, and it was a great time. What about you? I uh, went upstate to hang out with a friend who had a baby, like, eight months ago or so, and it was just so nice and chill and great to see her kid uh, who can now, like, do things, mm -hmm. you know, as a, not an infant, so it was really nice. Did it make you want to have a kid? Uh, you know, her child, I feel like, is actually a misadvertisement for having kids <laughs> because this baby is the chillest baby. Misadvertisement. So, yeah, so I was like, I could do this. Like, if all babies are this calm, collected, and chill, you know? Like, this kid just goes everywhere and does whatever, that's, you know? That's the goal. I, I know. Was, I was at a cool book baby. party the other day here in New York at a hotel, and there were people there with their babies, like, influenced with their babies. And I was like, how are these babies so relaxed and calm? What's going on? I guess you give them cool YouTube, and they just... Chill out. I know. It was a surprise. Okay, well, I look forward to being a gunkle to your Oh, child. my God. I that might assume. be the nicest thing you've ever said to really? me. Really? truly touched. I thought yeah. it was really narcissistic. No. <laughs> I, like, have I baby. love it. <laughs> gunkle Zach. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm verklempt over here. Uh. <laughs> yes. Well, here's a tweet from HuffPost. Celine Dion spoke out on the Titanic door debate, and she made a solid point. And here's a tweet from MTV Australia. Celine Dion says it's Jack Dawson's fault he didn't fit in, fit on the door in Titanic. <gasps> wow. I mean, this has been something that uh, I have thought about for years because as <laughs> we all know, as we all know, that door was definitely big enough for two bodies. It was, but what I love about Celine Dion's logic here, she did this with Fallon the other night and she was like, well, you know, one, Rose should probably be dead. Like, because, like, she fell in the water with a trench coat and is freezing in the middle of the Atlantic. Also, like, that's that. not real. So then, two, Jack doesn't need to ask for permission to get on the door. You could pull yourself up. What was She was passed out. Then, three, you know, his body was probably frozen in the water and he couldn't actually get himself up. So, you know, there, there, there we go. A new way to think about that iconic moment. Because for years, we have been so sad about this because we're like, how could Rose do this to the love of her life? Okay, so I actually think that uh, this is all on Jack because he told her to get on the door and maybe if Jack put aside his big man ego and got on the door with her, he would have been alive to see the end of that fictional movie. So you think Jack, okay, there there we go, a ding from someone, whoever agrees, <laughs> thank you. But like, do you, so you think Jack did it to be chivalrous? Like, could I don't really know. Like, it was just an important plot point. But you think that like the props department would have been like, we need a smaller door yes. or something? Because there is, if you Google this, there's like dimensions broken down to where how they could have laid and it made it work and not flipped over the thing. But what Celine Dion is pointing out is that it doesn't matter if they're laying on a board or whatever, they're freezing water yeah. all over over them, they would freeze to death and die. You know what, in life, I generally, like, Celine seems to be doing all the right things, so I'm gonna have to agree with her on this one. I believe mother. She also, <laughs> she also spent the weekend in New York City. Uh, she stopped by a drag club and performed some songs there, and she has a new album coming out, I hear, new stuff. So come on, gay mother Celine Dion, who's an out icon. here spilling tea. Well, let's take it to the timeline. Do you agree with Celine Dion? Is it actually Jack's fault he died in Titanic? Let us know using the hashtag am to dm Well, here's the tweet from Mara Gay. I got something important wrong. I got something important really wrong, he said. 
I'm sorry. Michael Bloomberg apologizing for stop and frisk at the Christian Cultural Center, a prominent black megachurch in Brooklyn. Here's a tweet from Maya Wiley. A reminder that as recently as January 2019, Bloomberg was defending stop and frisk despite New York City crime remaining low since we ended the policy. Now we must continue to police the practice. Still too many people of color told they quote match the description. Joining us now via phone to discuss is New York Times editorial board member Mara Gay. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, why is this apology such a big deal for Bloomberg? Well, um, you know, the former mayor ran the city of New York for over a decade, and he's a 77-year-old billionaire. He's very stubborn. Um, he's, for years, defended stop and frisk, uh, even after the data showed that it wasn't actually keeping, it wasn't necessary to keep people safe, and that it was discriminating against minorities, against black and brown New Yorkers. Um, and he's been very stubborn about it. And so to see him, it, you know, it was quite a dramatic about face uh, as early as um, last year, he was defending the program. So, um, you know, obviously this comes at a problematic time because you know, I'm being told that this is a sincere apology. And actually, I, I personally believe that it, it probably is. But yet it's complicated by the fact that he's on the precipice of running for president and he cannot win uh, without Black voters. Mm. So you mentioned it's complicated. What has been the response to this complicated moment for Bloomberg by people out in the public? You know, it's it's hard to sometimes see beyond the, the Twitter sphere, I would say. Um, but there's such a you know, cancel culture is so strong right now, for better or worse. And I think that the response, not necessarily in the church itself, I was there yesterday when the mayor apologized and he was greeted warmly, politely. It wasn't there wasn't backslapping in the room, but uh, the congregation in East New York and Brooklyn um, did seem to accept his apology apology at face value. But but I do think on Twitter and elsewhere there was a lot of anger. I think it brought up a lot of emotion for people. I mean, you got to really remember that this was a policy that really impacted an entire you know, generations, frankly, of of New Yorkers. So kids grew up getting tossed, right? Put up against the wall, their hands above their heads on the way to school and from school. Um, people were humiliated in the street. And 90% of the people who were stopped, uh, there was no arrest in those cases. And so the vast majority of people were innocent. In only 1.5% of the cases did people have uh, weapons on them. So this was a, really a very um, frustrating uh, experience and a very hurtful experience for a lot of people. And I think you saw a lot of that brought up yesterday. And also there was a sense that the mayor, if he was sincere, you know, where was he last year or five years ago? Why didn't, what took him so long? And also, is this enough? In other words, uh, there were people on Twitter saying, well, he should have been, he should be on an apology tour. He should be apologizing to young people across the city. He should be proposing reparations um, small and large. And so I think there is a sense that this needs to be the beginning for the former mayor and, and not the end of his apology. Yeah, I mean, how much of an impact do you think that this will actually have now? Um, do you get the sense that off Twitter, two people will just really feel like this was uh, the politically expedient thing for him to do? It's hard to say. I think time will tell. Um, you know, I do think it's really important that people be encouraged to 
change their mind and, um, you know, do the right thing, even if they haven't done the right thing before. And so I'm personally of the mind that it, it was an, a meaningful apology. I don't think his campaign, um, you know, he's not a front runner, right? So we don't know what's going to happen, but I really think it was important, not just for his legacy, but important to get on the record from the architect of a policy that it doesn't work. I mean, we don't want to see this policy replicated elsewhere. So now it's, it's quite a powerful thing to have somebody who defended this policy for years come out and say, I was wrong. I, I don't think we should discourage people in public life, especially politicians, from getting to the right place, even if it took them too long to do so. Mm. Well, you know, Bloomberg is notorious about being pretty strong-willed about his opinions, even when being criticized by the public at large. So what does this apology tell us about the potential 2020 candidate that is Bloomberg? Well, you know, Michael Bloomberg is a fascinating character. He's a fascinating man. I think this is a great example, um, this apology, of how politicians are, we think of them as caricatures, but they're not. They're human beings. They're deeply flawed. They're complicated people. Um, Mayor Bloomberg's extremely stubborn. He's very smart. He's got big ideas, which is a really wonderful thing. He's also very known to be very loyal. And so a lot of people thought maybe he, it took him so long to apologize for stop and frisk in part because he felt a, a deep loyalty to um, his police commissioner, former Commissioner Ray Kelly, who um, he credited with a, a significant decrease in um, shootings and murders in the city. Um, and so I think, you know, he cares deeply about guns and, and gun violence. And, and the reason he defended stop and frisk for so long is in his head, even though the data showed otherwise, he truly believed that this was something that was making black and Latino neighborhoods safer. Um, he, you know, he's, he's not a bigot. That's not what drives him. Mm. But, but I do think that he sounds, frankly, sometimes he can sound out of touch with the current moment. Um, criminal justice reform has far surpassed the conversation about stop and frisk and moved on to bail reform and, and other more progressive areas. So he's really got a lot of catching up to do. Mm, a lot of catching up to do. Well, Mara, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Here's a tweet from Blitzberg. Kaepernick's agent says he has not received any calls after his workout yesterday. Here's a tweet from Pro Football Talk. It's now obvious that the league set up a Colin Kaepernick workout for one reason, fear of Kaepernick pursuing new legal claims that could be much stronger than those he settled in February. And their clumsy effort to extinguish a new lawsuit may end up inviting one. Joining us now to discuss the latest on Kaepernick's workout is Karin J. Phillips, a senior columnist at Shadow League. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So there were some uh, late changes going into this workout. Can you walk us through how Saturday played out for Kaepernick? Um, I can walk you through it, but it's, it's been a complete mess, <laughs> um, especially living down here in Atlanta. Um, it was supposed to take place at the uh, Falcons facility, which is for people who aren't familiar with there. It's way out there. Is it way out in Metro Atlanta, out in Flowery Branch? It's, it's not even close to downtown or the heart of the city. And that's the place where the NFL had decided to do this. Uh, at the last minute, Kaepernick kind of hit an about face and was like, we're not going to do that. We're going to do it at a high school on the south side of town um, in, in Riverdale. And that's where it took place at, at Charles Drew, I believe. And then from there, he brought in his own receivers. Um, it was open to the public. It was open to the media. That's where we got a chance to hear him speak 
for the first time in a couple of years, I believe three to be exact. And you see all the footage that's on social media, that's on TV now, is from that workout that he did at the last minute. Because if he would have did it the way the NFL wanted, there would not be any footage, there would not be any photos. We would have no idea how he actually looked in that workout. Mm, so are you saying the purpose of this workout was so that the public could participate and witness what was happening? Not only that, because uh, now, you know, the narrative is back in Kaepernick's hands. If you were a team that was mildly interested or maybe you couldn't get your scouts down here on Saturday or you didn't want to deal with the public backlash of having someone there, now you get to see him. You see the footage. Um, you can access it. You can reach out to his team, to his agent, to his lawyers. Before, we don't know how that would have looked. Um, so from my standpoint, Kaepernick won because the way the NFL had this set up from the time we found out last week when it was announced to him having two hours to decide if he was going to do this, to all the insurgency uh, from legality reasons about the waiver they wanted him to sign, to him not even knowing who he's going to throw the ball to and why things were going to take place in that way, especially on a Saturday when many scouts are focused on college football or teams are traveling for their Sunday games or if they're playing on Monday night. Everything about this just felt wrong. Um, and so I understand there are a lot of opinions out there coming from both sides, and I get it. But if you're a man who has been blackballed by the league for three years, when you've been seeing the mediocre and just pathetic uh, quarterback play in the NFL for the past three years, he had nothing to lose here um, by switching things up at the last minute and controlling the narrative. Because now there are just no more excuses from the owners or the league. Mm. Well, here's a tweet from Jane McManus. It's a legitimate question to ask if Kaepernick was given the standard injury waiver, and if not, why not? If language was inserted or changed, what was the purpose? So, Karn, what happened with this waiver, and how was it different than standard injury waivers? Now, from my, you know, my knowledge of reading into the waiver, I'm not necessarily, like, the right person to break down because all the legalities are part of it. But what you can take away from it is this isn't the, the normal waiver they give to players for workouts. There was some adding language. There were some added layers to this that made his legal team step back and be like, mm, this is not the smartest move to do this. Because um, it just kind of felt like it would paint him in a corner. So instead of signing that, he kind of pulled back in the last moment, had his own workout. That way, um, if he signed the waiver... He, he would have basically had to do whatever the NFL wanted him to do. And if, if you paid attention to this story the whole time from having the, you know, the lawsuit against the league that they settled, this is a guy who isn't going to play by the league's rules because all he asked, all he really asked the NFL to do in the country to do was say, we want police to stop killing people that look like me. And all hell has broke loose for the last three years just because he asked people to do that. This is not the, the man or the type of person that's going to, sign over a waiver who just took this league to court and they believe that they had the smoking gun at some point. Mm. One of the things you said is that all of this allowed uh, Kaepernick to really uh, control the narrative around this. So insofar as uh, how the NFL looks, I mean, is it just really transparent that this was like a big PR move on their, on their part? That was the thing. I, and I love the fact that you use the word transparency. The, the way the NFL was trying to do that, there would have been no transparency at all. Um, if you think about how everything is played out. But this is the NFL. I've been a huge critic of the league for years. And we just think about all the issues they have, domestic violence, um, violence against women, the way they love to, you know, when it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, everybody wear pink. But if you want to wear pink, not during that month, you get fined. Um, when it's Veterans Day, it's like, wear, let's wear fatigue and support the veterans. 
But, you know, when you have a guy who took a knee and actually got the okay from a veteran to take a knee during the anthem, then it's still an issue. This is what the NFL is. The NFL is always going to look out for their best behalf and not the best behalf of their players, and especially not for social justice, we've seen. They're willing to cut a check sometimes, but are they willing to do the actual work behind it? No, because we have the facts. So transparency was the biggest thing here, like you said. And with Kaepernick's way, like it or not, at least we got transparency. We can cut on the TV and see how he actually looked in that workout, where if he would have did it the NFL's way, we'll still have question marks. Mm-hmm. Well, what is next for Kaepernick now that this training or this uh, practice is over? That's the biggest question here because it's a big, like, I don't know. Um, because what, four or five days ago, we had no idea this was even going to happen. And, you know, I've never in my mind or a recollection, remember a league just having a specific workout for one player. And then a press release comes out in the middle of the week. Uh, it just came out of left field. So everything about this has been weird because we've never dealt with it before. So when you add that along with Kaepernick, and this is a situation we've never seen before, it's just more question marks. Do I believe he'll get a call? Do I believe he'll be back in the league? No, I've been saying it right about this for the last two years where I just don't necessarily think it's going to happen. Um, do I hope so? Yes. I would love to see number seven back on Sundays playing football and throwing touchdowns. But I've never believed that since this all happened two, three years ago. Well, Karin, it was still so great to unpack this with you. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Sure. Coming up, Alex is talking to Rodney Reed's sister-in-law about his high-profile case and the stay of his ex- execution. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Welcome back. It's time for Fire Tweets. I'm gonna do it. Never get tired. Shower thoughts, you tweeted. You never realize how boring you are until someone asks what you do for fun. (laughs) This reminds me, this weekend I posted this. I think maybe on Twitter or Instagram. I have CoStar, the app that gives you like your astrology every week or whatever or every day. And it literally gave me a push notification that says that you are not your job. Attacked. And I was like, this reminds me of this tweet because Outside of work, I never know what to tell people. <laughs> See, this is why I don't know if I want to get co-star because I feel like it just reads everyone all the time. It tracks you. Because <laughs> I think it listens to you. So it's like a whole, you know, big brother thing. So watch out, be careful. It does, but it knows you. Okay. I needed to hear that on a Sunday though. <laughs> all right, well, Jim Mike, you tweet it. Why do Uber drivers ask, how's your morning going between four to seven AM? I'm sleepwalking here, fam. Just don't talk to me at that hour. Just don't. I need, you know, this show has helped me get better at mornings, but my old school thought was I need two hours before between waking up and then talking to someone. I think that's actually very fair. I, I want to drink, yeah, I want to drink a whole cup of coffee. <laughs> just, you're like, what? just one cup of coffee. <laughs> just choked on my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> because like, it's true. I, I just need imagine, properly caffeinated. I imagine your wife coming up to you in the morning and you're like, mm, mm. <laughs> But for real, though, like, that is pretty close to what happens. Oh, my God. Well, let's take it to the timeline. What is an appropriate time for human interaction after waking up in the morning? Tweet us using the hashtag am to dm All right, let's do the next tweet. Tris, you tweeted, proud to announce that I will be participating in No Noise November this month. Please do not speak to me. I will not be listening. Especially if you don't have coffee. Yes. So, uh, actually, just even if it's after 7 a.m., <laughs> Just don't talk to no me speaking. at all. That's this is it. the only part of the day that you talk. You're like silent and then come uh-huh. on the show and then you're like, bah! And then come back. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so funny. All right, well, Sander, you tweet it. My notes app be like future baby names, grocery lists, social media passwords, tweets to post, FAFSA ID, Instagram captions, and random food order. 
Basically, you could steal my identity if you looked at my notes section on my phone this, easily. This easily. just made me so anxious that that's people are probably monitoring your notes app to be like, oh, that's where the T is. That's well, it can connect to the iCloud, I think. Really? Yeah, I think that it can. Jesus so, Christ. you know, we're it's all nice. screwed. Okay, ready for tweet of the day? Yes. This comes from Little Miss Badass. The four stages of a day off. One, I will do so much stuff. Two, later, I'll do lots of stuff. Three, eventually I'll do some stuff. Four, oh no. <laughs> oh no, it is 8 p.m. and I have not gotten up from this couch. That is so. like my Sunday. Yesterday I had like forced myself at 1 p.m. to be like, you have to go do this one thing or you're gonna hate yourself later. And I was like, but why? I can rationalize this into oblivion and never do it. And? I did do one, Oh, you did, did you actually did the thing that you had to no, do? No, I needed to go to the dry cleaners and I forgot that dry cleaners aren't open on Sundays. Oh, so I went to the dry cleaners, oh, no. but nothing was dropped oh, off. Oh, like actually gonna get something done. So it was actually made it worse, so then I just hid. I just have this like ever-growing to-do list of things I need to do, but uh -huh. they don't have a particular deadline and I just cannot find the will sometimes. And so I'm like, I'll do it later on. I still have a few hours yeah. and then like the day. Alex, you have a wife, send her to do it. That's what I imagine partnership like. I feel like she that does, person's she doing does the enough. You, don't. you know, she has sacrificed enough. <laughs> So I, I gotta step it up. I love that I'm just projecting my you, ideas. You do fully, yeah. I'm like, you, okay. you go take the garbage out. You go pick up my laundry. I'm okay with it. Okay. Yeah. Well, coming up, I'm sitting down with actor and author Gloria Rubin. More MTDMs up next. Here's a tweet from Pitchfork. Back in September, Lizzo accused a Postmates delivery person of stealing her food. Shortly after, she apologized. Now that woman is suing Lizzo for defamation. And here's a tweet from Lizzo. I apologize for putting that girl on blast. I understand I have a large following and that there were so many variables that could have put her in danger. I'ma really be more responsible with my use of social media and check my petty and my pride at the door. Here's an unrelated but appropriate tweet from Kovie Biacolo. I often find the best way to challenge or correct someone on here is in the DMs, if I actually care about their growth being. So much of the need to dunk on people publicly is motivated by ego, looking smart or woke or right. Ooh, T, 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 T. I love that tweet because that is the real business there. Because mm -hmm. I think we all struggle every day, especially when people are constantly dunking on our president, Donald Trump, uh, when he tweets ridiculous things, to do that to other people all the mm -hmm. time. Instead of just reaching out and being like, hey girl, you're messing up, let's talk about it. They just want to do it publicly. Well, that's the thing about like this Lizzo case is mm -hmm. the most extreme example of yeah. maybe not understanding the implications of the amount of followers you having and then weaponizing them over yes. a, a missed Postmates delivery. So I yes. feel like that is an extreme example, but I can really appreciate the idea that if you take umbrage with something that someone has tweeted, actually reaching out to them in the DMs, mm -hmm. if, you, if you care about them enough or you actually feel like you want to spend the time yeah. to help them grow. I've definitely seen times, um, especially when it comes to some LGBTQ news coverage, when I feel like, oh, like bisexual people were erased or yeah. like this could have been a little bit better and have reached out to someone because I care about them yeah. and not because I like, want the internet to rally and like cancel yeah. the thing that they were doing. Yeah, you know? and I think it's so complicated because you know, as you were saying that, it reminded me that folks began doing this because a lot of times we have not had a like, kind of a democratization of power. Yeah. So you know, you see a lot of folks on Twitter who don't have huge followings even, who are able to make a viral tweet go really far by calling someone out for something they should be calling them out for. Um, and in that moment, there's kind of this power imbalance because they become like pretty famous on Twitter really quickly and then it becomes this whole public battle. Um, because sometimes you can't reach out to these people 
people and actually have a conversation. But I do think in the case of celebrities, when it's you're a Lizzo, you're yeah. coming after your Postmates delivery person with their face, it's pretty uneven. I mean, there. yeah, I, I think like the, the big thing about this is that everything is always way more gray yeah. on the internet than I think a lot of people <laughs> yeah. wanna believe or actually that we are like equipped to deal with as a culture. And who knows, like, I, like Lizzo's apology sounded really sincere. Yeah. And you know, it's very possible that she, like I can't imagine what it's like going from, you know, basically having this overnight fame mm -hmm. um, and like not understanding just how yeah. devastating that can be to someone else. And and so, yeah. Yeah, I also am of the school of thought that a private message to a brand sometimes goes way farther huh. than the public shaming. Because public shaming is kind of this thing of like, then they gotta like, their PR teams get kicked in and it's like this whole moment, they have a crisis team, like I'm sure like whatever, a Postmates had to have a crisis team meeting. But if you do it privately, they'll just give you some free stuff. They're like, I'm so sorry about that. Here's your free shit, take your shit, please don't tweet. Thank you so much, love your album. And then you're done. And I yeah. always tell people that with airlines, don't do the public tweet because it's just gonna like it's much faster in the DMs and they'll actually give you more. I like that your your justification <laughs> to not do it publicly is not so that like a person doesn't come off as insufferable well, and entitled, <laughs> but it's actually just because it's more of an expedited process to go right to them. Girl, this so. is capitalism. We're trying to barter right. and get our shit. Okay. Trying to get my things. Noted. With other people, like friends of mine in media, I will reach out to them and be like, hey girl, you're kind of messing yeah. up. But when it's a brand, like when United has messed me up on a flight, I have been in those DMs like, girl, here's the tea. This is what I need. This is what you're gonna give me. Or, or then you I just sure. you just post a screenshot of the United plane being like get her. <laughs> or just send them my drafts That's for all it. the drafts. Exactly. I'm like yeah. I'll press in, girl. Oh I will God. press in. Well, let's take it to the timeline. How do you call someone out? Cheat us using the hashtag #AMTDM. I call their mothers. Oh my God. <laughs> Kidding. God, I am petty. You know on now? That makes me nervous. <gasps> and, yeah. uh, I'm gonna call oh. her out. All right. Well, up next, I'm talking to actor and author Gloria Rubin. You may know Gloria Rubin from her roles in some of TV's most popular shows like ER and Mr. Robot, but now she's sharing her experience as a sister and daughter in her new book, My Brother's Keeper. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, so, you know, up to this point, everyone's known you as an actor. What made you want to write this book and tell this story specifically? You know, it happened so organically, this book coming about. I have been a journal writer for many, many years. And after my younger brother, David, mm -hmm. passed many moons ago, uh, I had found that the entries became, you know, more frequent and obviously uh, very in-depth, etc. And then when my brother Dennis passed a few years ago, mm -hmm. the same happened. And I realized that a lot of these entries kind of started to shape themselves into almost little essays, if you will. And then mm -hmm. a few years ago, as I was reading, Rereading some of them and just kind of working through still to this day, you know, mm -hmm. the process of grief and, and life and moving forward and still honoring the past. The essays, I, I just kind of started putting them in a, in a certain order, if you will, and, um, and it ended up shaping up into this book with mm. narrative, narration in between, if you will, about my upbringing and about mm. my lives with them. And yeah, it's so incredible. And it's, it's really been a truly a beautiful labor of love and mm -hmm. many, many years in the making. And um, I have to say, it's kind of one of the most uh, 
fulfilling creative mm. projects I've ever done. Mm. Did it feel kind of like, you know, a way of processing and dealing with, I'm sure traumas of that, because, you know, the book details two brothers dying within 20 years apart, your father dying when you were a young girl, and you're reflecting on all of these things. Yes. Did it help you kind of finally put any kind of trauma around that to rest? Well, I, yes, very much so. It definitely was a cathartic process. Um, no question about it. The, a lot of the uh, trauma that was still residing had a way to release itself mm -hmm. in a very tangible form, do you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so in that way, it was extremely healing. And also to, as I think anybody would agree, when you kind of travel back in time and revisit memories and places and feelings and situations mm -hmm. with those whom you love, um, when it's a challenging, difficult time or when it's one that's filled with love and laughter, it. It almost, it's almost like no, it's a rubber band in time. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like yeah. no space is between that moment and the present moment. So oh. it was quite a journey, I have to say. And the journey continues, Yeah. Do you know? And the more that I was writing about, the more that I was revisiting mm -hmm. the past and writing about it and filling out these essays as well as writing uh, in between, kind of the thread mm -hmm. in between of my upbringing and how that uh, interwove with mm -hmm. everything the more things revealed themselves, the more yeah. memories came up and the more feelings came up. And so, um, yeah, the journey is definitely continuing on a yeah. healing basis and on a writing basis. For sure. Yeah. And that way of you putting it, the rubber band taking you back, yeah. that is such a poetic way of thinking of it because I think about grief as yeah. kind of the story that rubber bands you back. Yes. What tips have you learned to deal with the grief of that rubber banding back in time? Do you know, one of the things that I've learned the most and continue to learn uh, in this process mm -hmm. and as I talk about it and share it, with the world is that it, to just honor the process, mm. really to just take my time with it. I think sometimes in our society, we have this thing of, you know, we have to, we should be over it by now yeah. or, or a certain number of years go by and then, you know, you should just kind of move on and have closure. Well, love has no closure, mm. do you know? Mm -hmm. Love is an open book that has its own rhythm and its own time. So I just honor that and just allow it to be. If I have the space and the time in a particular day, if mm -hmm. I'm feeling over a little bit, you know, mm, extra tender and a mm -hmm. little bit overwhelmed, then I'll just, I'll just go easy on myself. Mm. Do you know, that's when I take extra special care so that I don't rush the process because when I have rushed the process before of healing, then that's when it starts to distort itself and when it starts to come out in, in ways that are not healthy or productive. Mm, would you say that's the biggest takeaway you want readers to get from the book, not to rush yes. uh, rush the healing process, yes. or the grieving process? I, that, uh, that would be the biggest thing, I think, is to know that you're not, no one's alone when it comes to mm -hmm. grief and loss and mm -hmm. love and life. Ugh. We're all in it together. You are really preaching over here to me. Like you really would, you, so you're like I, taking me on a journey. I, <laughs> that is so true, yes. So true, do you know? And it's that knowing that we're not mm -hmm. alone, I think is the most important thing, mm -hmm. you know? So that's my hope. Okay. Yeah. God, y'all need to get into this book. This is church <laughs> over here. Well, we have to talk about some of your other work, you yes. know, in the past as an actor. Uh, you played Jeannie Boulet in ER. I know. Huge, huge role. Huge role. We are at a moment where so many things are being rebooted. Yes. What would you think if they said, hey, girl, we're going to reboot ER? <laughs> well, I know, right? I, many people have asked that and, and uh -huh. thought about it. I myself, frankly, have thought about it. I don't think that that's really tangibly going to happen. Okay. I just, you, you know, um, I think it kind of sits in, in its world as, as you know, 
know, I mean, obviously a lot of the actors on the mm -hmm. show have, have moved on and, mm -hmm. and um, it might be a little difficult to, to lasso everyone mm -hmm. again. Mind you, that being said, I do have an idea okay. and have spoken about and am preparing to hopefully bring this to fruition. I have an idea not to necessarily reboot mm -hmm. Jeannie Boulay, but a continuation of Jeannie Boulay mm. 20 years later mm. in New York City. I love that. Why later? Because your character was famous for, you know, being HIV positive but surviving and not dying like so many of those depictions were back then. Indeed. So why do you think it's important to That like... is one of the reasons why, for sure. Okay. 20 years later, God. you know, her viral load is non-detectable, mm -hmm. very healthy. Her son's in college. I have the whole thing laid out. And again, it's not official, official. Mm -hmm. I've literally just started talking about it with the people mm -hmm. involved, if mm -hmm. you will. But that's my hope. Also because I know that, you know, because the show was beloved so much and Jeannie mm -hmm. Boulay was as well and continues to be, even no matter where I travel around the world, yeah. it's kind of crazy. Yeah. 25 years later. I mean, it was such a profound me, role. It's so profa the role was so profound. And people love Jeannie and mm -hmm. they still do. And I look great. So <laughs> I'm just... <laughs> You know. Wait, the confidence. So yes, yes. You know, why not? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm about to just sign up. I'm just going to come work with you, girl. <laughs> really, just I love everything that you're saying. <laughs> okay, so beyond Jeannie, you yeah. also are in Mr. Robot. You play also big, big role. And the show's coming to an end. I know. How are you feeling? I can't take I just wish it weren't coming to an end. Mm. It's been the most, I mean, okay. Really, think about it. And I have been thinking about it a lot. Mm -hmm. ER, 25 years ago. Lincoln, Steven Spielberg, mm -hmm. Daniel Taylor. Mr. Robot, extraordinary. Filmmaking, writing, directing, acting. I mean, clearly you know, the whole cast. I mean, just those three things, really. Like that would be enough. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, it, to me, Mr. Robot is like, a, now I'm on launching on a different, I'm, I'm launching, I'm moving forward. Mm -hmm. And this is an extra, mm, mm. like I'm launching in, even to bigger heights now because mm. of the show. Mm. The kind of creativity and commitment and dedication and talent in front of and behind the camera on this show has inspired me to, I'm just beginning yeah. on a whole new chapter. Yeah because of Mr. Robot. And for it to end this season, I mean, uh, boy, last night's episode? It is. Well, before we get into that, I have a clip of the show that we have to take a look before we jump into last night. He threatened my last boyfriend. He threatened me. You know, I had to stop seeing him because he scared me so much. You weren't scared of him! You loved his ass! Mm, so your character, Krista's, big, big role right there. Krista's relationship with Elliot is clearly damaged. Uh, but on last night's episode, um, spoiler alert, everyone, uh -huh. um, that you went through, there was a major revelation, and yeah. you all went through a death together. What was it like to do that scene with Rami? Um, unforgettable with Rami, with Christian, with Elliot, who plays with mm -hmm. But in that particular moment of the scene when it's basically mm -hmm. just me and Rami. Every time that I've worked with him, I've been really lucky in this show because the majority of my time as Krista is with Elliot one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. 
you know, nothing else going around, going on around us, just the two of us. And for the pinnacle of that story between Krista and Elliot and Elliot's life, for that pinnacle to have happened last night in that scene, in that episode, the episode as a whole is unlike anything I've ever seen mm -hmm. on any television yeah. show ever. So to be a part of it was something in its own right. But to have worked on that scene and in that moment with Rami was the deepest and the highest mm -hmm. at the same time. The deepest emotionally and in, with the level of intensity and the level of focus and we were so connected. Mm. And the highest because of the result. When you watch that scene, when you watch the whole episode, it's the, it's the highest of, that anyone could ever possibly dream of as an actor. Mm. Really, when I say that I'm you know, launching to new heights, I just, frankly, I don't know how that, where I'm going to go because... <laughs> like, what's next? I, I know. I, I did say to Sam, I, I did say to him towards the end, of, said to him, you know, Sam, you're killing me here. Like, what am I going to do now? Well, you have a book now. Oh, well, there's well, that. You have other things. <laughs> there, are, there is life. There's life. Well, thank you so much. It's been so lovely chatting and getting, getting here about all the work and also thank you for sharing your stories of, of grief and, and getting through all of that. It's been really, really inspiring. And y'all can watch Mr. Robot Sundays on USA and My Brother's Keeper is available wherever books are sold. More AM to DM is up next. was convicted and sent to death row by an all-white jury for the 1996 murder, rape, and abduction of a woman. He has always said he was innocent, and on Friday, the Texas Parole Board unanimously voted to grant Reed a stay of execution after new evidence of his innocence came to light. Author and activist Shane Claiborne tweeted, No one fought harder for Rodney's life than his own family. His mom Sandra, his brother Roderick, and sister-in-law Juana Apcon. They are heroes of mine. We'll continue to stand with them until Rodney gets to come home. Joining me via phone to talk about his case is Juana Apcon Reed, Rodney Reed's sister-in-law. Good morning. Good morning. Now, Rodney was scheduled to be executed by lethal injection on Wednesday, November 20th. Where were you when you got the news that Rodney's execution was blocked by the Texas courts? Um, so by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, we were actually on the plane leaving Washington, D.C., or technically it was the Dulles Airport. and um, we were having issues like the air traffic controllers weren't ready for us to go. So we we're just like chilling on the plane. And then, so I took my phone off of airplane mode and his lawyer, Bryce Benjet, he, his name came up on my phone immediately. And he told us, Hey, the Texas court of criminal appeals, they gave him a stay of execution indefinitely. So it was a blessing. We were so thankful to God for that. You know, that we got that news prior to the weekend coming. Hmm. Were you surprised by any of the last-minute bipartisan support for Rodney? Yes. Some people, I was just kind of like, wow, you know, I like Senator Ted Cruz. That was pretty amazing. Um, uh, Mike McCall, that was also pretty, um, we weren't expecting that. And then the Polk County GOP, um, and we were just blessed that they used their voice to advocate for, you know, at, at the very least, Rodney deserves a new trial to, you know, show that he, he is innocent. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, they weren't the only high-profile people uh, who were advocating for him. It made a lot of news, actually, that Kim Kardashian was with Rodney when he was granted a stay of execution. How do you feel about her support? 
I am so thankful to God. You know, it's a, a major blessing. I thank God that Kim Kardashian has gotten involved. Like we've been praying for, you know, we prayed specifically to God for high profile support because we've, you know, my family's been doing this fight for decades. And, you know, we've had, you know, the MSNBCs, the CNN, the A&E and Discovery Network stuff, but it was like a lot of people still did not know of Rodney's case. And with Dr. Phil, you know, that helped to really make things explode. And then with Kim Kardashian tweeting, you know, that really made things explode. And then with Sean King's petition, things started to really pick up from there. But Kim Kardashian, you know, it's more than just tweeting and stuff like that. She's actually doing stuff on the back end, stuff that we, you know, aren't, you know, can't really know at this time and everything, but she's doing a lot of work on the back end. We actually met with her last night. Um, her and her husband, Kanye, they were at the uh, Sunday service they invited that invited us to that and we were able to sit down and talk with them and they're just really cool down to earth people and she you can tell the sincerity in her voice that she you know she obviously she believes Rodney is innocent and she wants to do everything she can to see him free because you know he doesn't deserve that he doesn't deserve to be on death row for something he had nothing to do with Mm. Well, I want to talk more about uh, what this whole uh, ordeal has been like um, for you, for your family, for Rodney. Um, so can you describe what life has been like for Rodney now that he has been removed from Death Watch? I don't know. I haven't had the opportunity to talk to Rodney directly. What we, The last thing we heard was, um, you know, what Kim said that um, his response was to her bringing the news to him. And he said, praise Jesus. We hope to get, we're planning to go to see him the week after this one. So this week, his partner, Judy Ann is going to go see him. And then we're going to see him the following week. So we'll get to know more about, you know, how he's doing and, you know, just what he thinks of everything. What, what has this been like for you and your family? What, what toll has the legal battle taken on you and your family? I can only speak for myself and just what my family tells me. You know, they've been dealing with this for since April 4th, 1997, when he was um, charged with Stacey's murder. And it's been a nightmare, you know, coming me coming in on the tail end of things and stuff. It's been, you know, it started to this has become my nightmare as well. You know, in the beginning, they were treated as pariahs. People, you know, would look at them like, oh, is that hereditary? They couldn't get jobs at places, even like McDonald's. My husband, Roderick, he is a um, skilled HVAC technician. He couldn't even get a job at McDonald's. They were blackballed. Um, so much trauma, so much stress, and so much just being looked down upon and people not coming to your aid. They reached out to the churches here in Bastrop, primarily the black churches, which ha have historically been beacons of hope for, you know, the black struggle. The black churches out here said, one pastor said, I wouldn't touch that case with a 10-foot pole. But the tide is starting to change. You know, folks are, I think a lot of that has to do with the high-profile support, you know, um, for the first time in the decades-long fight, not necessarily Bastrop churches, but a Bastrop County faith leader, Reverend Byron Green, you know, he's been really vocal in helping our family, you know, and on the spiritual end, trying to help with getting the um, faith leader support of faith group out of Austin, excuse me, a church out of Austin, um, Sherwin Patton, 
and um, the the team at Greater Mount Zion, they've helped out a bunch and stuff. So the the tide is starting to change a lot there, and f- just folks in the community, Bashaw community, are starting to, you know, now Roderick he says, and Mama too when they go out and about and everything, people look at them as heroes, you know? So, you know, you go from being pariahs to, you know, basically untouchables to people heralding you as heroes in this fight for justice. So it's, you know, it's pretty encouraging to witness. Well, you mentioned that tipping point and there have been rallies and petitions signed by millions of people to free Rodney. Um, What would you like his supporters to do? How could they be helpful to you and your family? Hmm. At this time, you know, we're looking for the quickest route to freedom, and we believe Bastrop County District Attorney Brian Gertz's office is probably the quickest avenue to freedom at this time. Rodney has said that he wants to be exonerated prior to freedom, which is extremely understandable because, you know, it would be I, I guess like, you know, he's thinking, you know, if he's free and folks are still attribute, you know, saying it's he's he got away and stuff like that that would be you know not really living and stuff like that but we just want him home Mm. and um ways that folks could help us is just you know staying tuned not giving up or like getting lax in this fight let's keep the momentum going like we have all this high profile attention and we don't want that momentum to drop we need to you know keep at it while the while the fire is still burning. Mm-hmm. How hopeful are you feeling at this moment that Rodney's conviction will be overturned and that he will be set free? I'm extremely hopeful um, and I have faith that that will happen. To me, it's just a matter of the timing, how long it's going to take. You know, he's already spent so much of his life incarcerated for this crime that he had nothing to do with. It's time for him to be set free. But I know the wheels of justice, they tend to turn pretty slowly you know he's been there for a very long time already um but we do have faith that he will be set free we just pray that it comes sooner than later Alana, i really appreciate you giving us your time this morning thank you so much for joining me thank you and stay tuned for more am's dm coming up welcome back here's a tweet from eric thomas three words hot Prince Charles. Was I ready? No. Did I want this? No. Do I need this now that it is here? Yes. Joining me now is senior staff writer for Elle magazine, Eric Thomas, to discuss our man crush Monday, Josh (gasps) O'Connor. Before we talk about this man, girl, what is this crowd? I'm obsessed with it so much. She loves loves the theme, Zach. I have, you know, you have to dress for the occasion, and the occasion is royal thirst today, so hence... My crown. Uh, this is actually just what I wear on Mondays. I, I have to be honest. You know, your crown was bought and paid for, girl. There you go. <laughs> there you <laughs> yes, go. Indeed. All right. So after almost two years, Netflix's The Crown is back with season three, featuring a very hot Prince Charles, played by Josh O'Connor. When did O'Connor first pop up on your radar? Well, okay. So Josh O'Connor starred in this 2017 movie called God's Own Country that I don't know that I'll be able to speak about without crying. So excuse me. He plays a gay man named uh, Johnny. Uh, who is out to himself and out to his family, um, but he has a lot of internalized anger about his station in life. He works for his family's uh, sheep farm. And then the family, like you do, brings in a Romanian farmhand. And uh, like, as usual, happens on any farm with, you know, sheep and a Romanian farmhand, they start just like 
banging each other in the mud. Uh, and can I say that on the show? Oh, for sure. Um, you can get even great. more graphic, girl. It's Monday. It's fine. Oh, I don't know about that. This, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I've got church later. So they they start having the most uh, intense physical relationship. And Joshua Connor is such a good actor. That's the thing. You know, I'm an intelligent thirster. I have a Pulitzer Prize in thirst. So I'm not just like thirsting after any old like sure. lanky old twink. He is a phenomenal actor. This was a phenomenal performance. And, uh, and, and it's just like so viscerally sexy. It's a really uh, phenomenal film. Um, in, you know, it, it adds a lot to uh, the gay thirst canon, which is uh, gaping. Yeah, it really is. Gaping is a word. But, you know, at the <laughs> end of the film that you love so much, O'Connor asks his love interest to stay on the farm with him after having the sexual affair and falling in mm -hmm. love. What would you do if you were offered to trade your current life in for a life on the farm with Josh O'Connor? Oh, Lord. See, that's the thing. That is my kryptonite because farms, no, thank you. You know, I love the earth, you know, bless up to the climate or whatever, but I'm not uh, one for like dirty cuticles. So I'm not so sure. But then you, you know, you see in the movie, they like hand deliver a sheep uh, and it's so weirdly intimate and sensual. And I was like, wow, I never knew that like a sheep's uterus could be like, uh, foreplay. So I'd say, like, I think I'd probably say yes, but only for Josh O'Connor. Only for Josh O'Connor. Okay, that is really good to know. So let's talk more about The Crown. Royal Realness oh. tweeted, Josh O'Connor is way too handsome to play Prince Charles. No disrespect to Charles, he was okay looking, but come on. So as you know, there have been quite a few mentions on Twitter expressing confusion around this casting. How do you feel about this exceptionally hot portrayal of Prince Charles? Well, here's the thing. I don't. I don't really know a lot about like the royals. I didn't start paying attention to the royals uh, uh, until Prince Harry went running naked through that Las Vegas hotel about ten years ago. So I'm real new to this. But I have to say, if I'm going to watch a monarchy, which like not like poor monarchy, crown notwithstanding, I need to see uh, hot people being in it. So I'm very much here for hot Prince Charles. I would like for hot Prince Charles to like wrap me in his giant ears like a chalupa. Uh, I would love for him to like run me through with Excalibur. I'd love for me him to like kick me in the face with a polo horse. For sure. I'm very much here for that. I'm very I'm very okay with this portrayal. Yes, I love this like role playing through royal royalty. But you bring up his ears. <laughs> we have a tweet about it from Horror Bore Ale, who tweeted, Josh O'Connor's ears over everything. So we have to you know dive deeper into these ears. Do that help? Oh, do we indeed? <laughs> so his ears are cute and totally work for him, but what do you think about his ears and the real Prince Charles's ears? Are they the same ears or one better? Oh, I mean, like, oh, God, that's a really tough question. You know, like, it's all about the context. And, you know, like, scientists are saying that, like, Josh O'Connor is just another, you know, lanky white guy with big ears. But scientists are also saying that, like, all of that put together means that he can rail me to death. So, like, who can say? Yeah. I do think that it works better on Josh O'Connor than Prince Charles. Mm -hmm. um, just because of, like he, like, he has his hair situation figured out. Um, he's got this sort of, like... He's got a little like pouty, sort of like dark and brooding thing. He's like a Greta Gerwig character in Michael Sarah's body. It, it works. It all works for me. Okay, it works. Well, okay, here's a really important question, and it comes from Sanders mm -hmm. Paisley, or the idea comes from Sanders. If my crush on Josh O'Connors means I have a crush on Prince Charles, this will be something I'll have to live with. So according mm. to a poll from YouGov back in 2017, Prince Charles has one of the lowest approval ratings out of the royal family. Do you think Josh O'Connor's sexiness has the power to change that? 
You know, I, I think it actually is powerful enough to do that. You know, the thirst blinds us, I have to say. And it's like, you know, this pains me to say as an American, you know, Alexander Hamilton didn't fight King George in hand-to-hand -hand combat on the Verrazano Bridge for me to be thirsting after royalty. But here we are. So what now? I do think uh, that people may start to think of Prince Charles differently, also because the portrayal of him on the crown is pretty sympathetic. You know, he is he's under his mother's thumb. He is constantly being told by people like, you won't be anything until your mom dies, which is like eh, intense news to hear from anybody. Um, but he like comes across as this sort of like mopey but romantic hero. He is in love with Camilla Shiant, uh, the future Camilla Parker Bowles. Spoiler alert. I'm sorry. I hope anyone, no one's shocked uh, to hear this news. Um, but uh, and it, it kind of plays like a star-crossed lovers type of thing. Um, and I think a lot of Josh O'Connor's charm is going to rub off on uh, Prince Charles, to coin a term. Okay, well, I hope Prince Charles has that, that power to have that happen to his life. So before I let you go, who is your favorite character on The Crown this season? Uh, see, I feel, okay, see, this is a trap, uh, Zach, because it is, uh, is a gay misdemeanor not to say Helena Bottom Carter is Amen. my favorite character. But I am loving Princess Anne, who's played by Erin Doherty. Mm -hmm. She has, you know, like Princess Margaret, she's not really uh, into the whole monarchy thing. She won't ever be the queen. So she uh, just has like a great time. Like she's banging Andrew Parker Bowles. Again, spoiler alert, sorry. Uh, she is the queen of the one-liner. She's like, you know, she may be a princess, but she's a shade queen. It is a really phenomenal performance uh, and a really well-written part. So I love Princess Anne. I, I agree with you. And I love that you said it. it's a misdemeanor not to like Helen. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, no, they're coming for me. I can hear the sirens right now. Yep, you're going to jail, girl. Going to jail. Well, thank you so much for helping me celebrate our Man Crush Monday today. Well, cheerio. Bye-bye. All right, well, let's take it to the timeline. Who's your favorite character on The Crown? Tweet us using the hashtag AM2DM. Up next, we have more of the show, so stay tuned. Welcome back. It's now time for Addis, and we asked you, do you agree with Celine? It, uh, is it Jack's fault if he died uh, for dying in Titanic? Francesca Picardi tweeted, very obviously roses. <gasps> oh, I want, I mean, explain this to me. I feel, as a man, I feel like I can't blame her for this, but I did for many years blame her. You did? Yes, that my private diary say this. Why, because she like needed to get it together? It's like, move girl. Y'all can't, can't you take turns? I don't understand. I remember she my didn't old, even have to move. There my, was room for both of them on that thing. Childhood logic at the time, I remember very clearly thinking, why are they not just switching places? I wasn't thinking about Celine's beautiful point that they would just both be dead because the water is freezing them still. On the other hand, Rose ended up with like this priceless diamond living to a wonderful elderly age. And as we know, like whenever there's someone who lives to be 105 mm -hmm. years old, she always says she wasn't dealing with men all the time. So I don't know. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you got your, your, your diamonds, girl. <laughs> okay. Really happy for that. Well, during our conversation about Bloomberg's stop and frisk apology, Christian tweeted, Bloomberg 2020 leading the too little too late movement. I may as well apologize for all the horrible things I did in 2004. Which, like, this taps into the idea that, uh, yeah, I mean, could have been a little more meaningful for him yeah. to apologize earlier. Yeah. Not when it seems to be, like, the opportune moment. But I'm also of the school of thought, you know, it's never too late to say sorry to quote Justin Bieber. So, you know, thank you for doing it. <laughs> that you, it took me fully a second to digest You're it. Like, you ah. actually took this to Justin Bieber. Okay. Full circle. Well, we asked what is an appropriate time for human interaction after waking up in the morning. Dan Saltston tweeted, weekdays, whenever I wake up my daughter. Weekends, whenever my daughter wakes me up. Uh-uh, I'd be like, no, 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 kid. 
go back to bed. This is why I don't want kids. I want to be a uncle because I need to be able to choose when I'm being woken I... up by slimy fingers and loud noises. Ew. Okay, that makes sense. Yes. All right. Well, thank you to our guests, Mara Gay, Karen J. Phillips, Juana Apkan Reed, Eric Thomas, and Gloria Rubin. And we will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. with more AM to DM. Have a great day.